this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. You know, the subtitle for my book, Built to Sell, is called Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. Why? Because I think that's the ultimate poker hand in the game of life. If you've got a business that can succeed without you doing all the work, you've got lots of options, right? You could sell it. You could bring in a manager. You could sell part of it. Lots of options. And I think the prerequisite for building a business that can thrive without you is having standard operating procedures. Having a set of guidelines where you can delegate your most important tasks and projects to your team and have them do them just as well as you would do them. We've just developed a brand new ebook and you can get a free copy at builttosell.com slash SOP. It will give you the instructions for creating SOPs. It'll tell you what to document, the difference between auditory learners and visual learners and kinetic learners, and how you can make sure your SOPs relate to all those different types of individuals. Again, go to builttosell.com slash SOP to download a free copy of the ebook. Next up is Justin Adams from Digitize.ai. Kind of a complicated business, but Justin does a great job in the intro of explaining it in layman's terms. So I won't talk about what it is here. What I want you to take away from this interview was, in particular if you're a service company and you're interested in transitioning it into a product or a software company, listen to what Justin did to protect his IP, intellectual property, so that When he was successful making the shift, he, not his consulting clients, owned the IP. It's a little nuance, but I think it's important that you protect your IP up front, in particular if your aspiration is to turn your company into a product business. He talks a lot about how to increase the likelihood of your your idea becoming a success, so have a listen for that. He talks about why myopically trying to hang on to 50% of your equity may actually be a mistake, which is interesting. He talks about some benchmarks for valuation around software companies and how those are different than service businesses. Just lots of takeaways and great insight from Justin Adams. Enjoy. Justin Adams, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. Tell me about digitize.a. And I got to tell you, I read the press release and I'm still confused. So you got you to break it down for me in layman's terms. What on earth did you guys do? Well, we uh, found a process in healthcare that sits in the CFO function that if you, in the US, if you need certain medical procedures, let's say you, you need to have a knee surgery, the hospital or the doctor's office has to ask your insurance company ahead of time in order to get authorizations to reimburse for that procedure. And what we discovered is that was a very manual process, meaning there's a team of folks usually at these large hospitals that are manually calling insurance company lines, waiting for two hours to get an answer, or you know some have online access, but even that's a very manual process. And so what we did is we built a piece of software that helped facilitate that uh, transaction, really saving hospitals and and patients time getting approvals for their medical procedures. Okay. So if I'm, if I'm in the bowels of some hospital in the, in the, in the, in the billing department, and I'm I'm like, uh, Mr. Jones wants to get a knee replacement. I need to know if Mr. Jones is good for the cash, right? Like, correct. It, and so I need to know that if if we're gonna put if we're gonna effectively finance the surgery, that I'm gonna get my money from the insurance company. Now, why isn't Mr. Jones on the hook to figure that out himself? That's a good question. I I think because the process is so complex, m- most people, you know, myself included, I've dealt with this with my family. Trying to navigate it is extremely you know difficult. And so the hospital at the end of the day is you know once they approve it they're going to be on the hook um 
Now, sometimes they might have Mr. Jones sign a waiver that he's on the hook. It just depends on the, on the hospital. But you, you, you can imagine there's a bit of gamesmanship involved. Uh, insurance companies, it's really a zero-sum game when you think about it. They take in a pot of money, and their profit is whatever they don't pay out of that pot of money at the end of the day. So there's not necessarily an incentive to make that a, a easy experience for them to pay out of, of their pot of money. Got it. Okay. So the hospitals were the ones, like what was the business model? Were you selling it to the hospitals? Correct. So we were selling into the CFOs of these hospitals. Got it. Got it. it. I mean, it must've been like shooting fish in a barrel in a way. Like, were they, like, was it easy to get them signed up or were there objections that you ran into? You know, selling into large hospital systems is a long sales process. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting about it is, most businesses, if you can show someone a two or three times efficiency game, it's a no-brainer. Hospitals have so many areas for efficiency gains that a lot of times they could say, yeah, yeah, that's a 3x gain for us, but we've got a dozen things over here that are 5 or 10x gains, and so they're going to prioritize that instead. So it's actually a very difficult and long sales process selling into these uh, large systems. How did you get into this? I mean, like, were you a CFO at a hospital? Like, how, how did you stumble into this opportunity? Yeah, that's a great question. So I had developed a back office automation expertise when I was at PwC. I, I set the big up a accounting set, firm, the big, the big accounting big firm, exactly. consulting firm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, one of the big four. And, and I had helped set up a center of excellence around automating back office finance functions. So, you know, think HR, you know, finance. Etc. And so when I started digitize.ai, it was really a hammer looking for a nail. So it had this capability, but didn't know what the use case was going to be. And was fortunate to be introduced to a hospital CFO. And really, the question was, if you had a magic wand, what, what what's the process that you have to do today that you would love to have it be automated? And, and this was the uh, the answer um, was around prior authorizations. And so the thinking was if this is a pain for one large hospital system, it's, there's a good chance that it's going to be a pain for others. And so that kind of starts on this journey. And did you have the technical chops to build this out or did you have a co-founder or how did you kind of do the technical side of things? Yeah. So we, I had technical co-founder, um, a couple co-founders uh, started this with me. And, and so we, you know, we grew from there. How did you guys deal with the equity piece? Because I'm always fascinated. By so some technical founders think the product is the solution, right? Like if you can build a great product, it'll sell itself. The old Kevin Costner, if you build it, they will come sort of ideas. So they're like, I want all the equity, right? You sales guys, you know, business guys. I mean, you're just blowhards. The sales guys, the business guys are like, or gals are like, no, no, nothing sells. It's like nothing matters until you make a sale. Anybody can make a product. So how did you guys deal with the dole decision to split the, the equity piece? Yeah, what we did is really what we looked at is risk and the amount of uh, risk that we took starting the business. So, for example, when I started the company, my wife and I went at it full time looking to raise some angel funding for about six months before we got that funding in the door. With And so we had no income. Um, it got, you know, we burned all our cash savings. It got to the point where our uh, dryer broke and we didn't have the money to fix it. And so my wife oh. was hanging, hanging clothes on a clothesline in our backyard. Seriously? Um, yeah. So we, we put everything we had into the, getting the company off the ground. And so the, the co-founders that I brought on, once I had funded the business, I had de-risked it you know, in a lot of ways for them where we had enough funding to, to, to last. And so, you know, tried to negotiate a, a, a fair split uh, and, you know, once we exited, you know, it was more than more than fair uh, in terms of the, the upside that they received, um, yeah. you know, for for the work. And so, how did you raise money for this idea? Uh, well, I had some friends that had done well in other. I live in Charlotte, which is a banking town, real estate town. So I had some friends that had done well in banking and real estate, and basically said, "We, you know, we'll back you if you, if you start something. We believe in." Uh, you and, and and kind of the skills that you have, and so that was really the it, it, the two of them was was not enough to get it going, but it was the foundation to 
start, you know, looking for additional capital. And so, you know, it was a classic put together a pitch deck and uh, figure out terms and go around. And that was the, that was the six months because it, it wasn't just identifying folks you, that there's a long lag, which when, when they say yes, <laughs> we'll back you to agreeing to the legal terms to the money being wired and finally hitting that, the, the bank. And so meanwhile, you know, what, what maybe you know, a month or two doesn't seem like a big deal to someone who's wiring uh, money to, to an entrepreneur. But when an entrepreneur is watching their life savings go down to zero quickly, um, <laughs> every, you can imagine how stressful every day is wondering if those, those funds are going to you know, come through. What was that like for your relationship with your wife? That's a great question. You know, she, she's been my biggest supporter from day one. And she'll tell you, even when we were dating and we met, she knew I was going to do this at some, someday. You know, she didn't know it was going to be a decade after we were married. But if it wasn't for her, honestly, pushing me, I, I don't think I would have. I had a good, stable job. I had benefits. Uh, um, you know, I would, I would dip a toe off the cliff. And, and really, it was her support of pushing me kind of off the cliff to, to take the plunge. And I tell entrepreneurs all the time that want to start their own thing, you know, if your spouse isn't supportive, you know, don't even bother because it's it's so hard as it is that if you have that friction on the home front, I, I just don't know how it's you know possible to do that. This is this is pretty crazy because PwC is like a big company. It's a brand name institution. It's kind of got badge value on your resume. Like it's it's a great kind of gig, right? And partner track is pretty exciting. Your spouse gave up her work as well to come work with you on this idea, presumably. Correct. And gave up, and you gave up that steady and got to a point where the dryer broke and, yeah. <laughs> and you guys didn't have the cash. That's crazy. Yeah. And I had started, uh, you know, the itch to be an entrepreneur was so strong. I had started two other businesses on, on, on the side during nights and weekends, uh, you know, coding with co-founders. And, and, and both of them got to a working product. And, and I didn't see long, I, there was concerns about going for it, right, with, with each of them. One, we built an application that I said, boy, I think LinkedIn's going to really get into the space and they'll eat our lunch. And. Um, so I didn't, you know, quit to go after that one. Sure enough, six months later, LinkedIn did exactly what I was, you know, so it was a good thing. Uh, so this wasn't, this wasn't just a wake up one day and, you know, decide to start a thing company. It was a, a constant evolution of learning and, and, and de-risking so that when the time came, you know, you set yourself up for the best chance of success, but there's no way to fully de-risk it, right? It, you have to just take the plunge to, uh, it, it, again, if, if, I think you can do so much during nights and weekends, but at some point, I, you think you have to burn the ships, so to speak, behind you and have no other alternative options because what it takes to get there is just so great that if you have a lifeline, chances are you're going to probably use it at some point. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I'm a, a big fan of the uh, the burn the ships analogy and, and how important that is to, to, to ultimately kind of, you know, Mother, you know, what's a uh, necessity is the, is the mother of invention. That's an old expression that uh, I think rings true for sure. How important was it for you to maintain at least 50% of the equity? I know for a lot of founders, that is almost psychologically important that they don't give up. And, you know, you could do different classes of shares so, so you can control the company. W was that something that you were focused on? Because you had to raise some money from outside. You had some co-founders. Like, was hanging on to at least half, like, a big priority for you? You know, it's interesting. So, yes, it was with that one. And, and now I have a new company. And right off the gate, I have less than 50% because I, I, I shared a lot more equity the second time around. So, I have perspective on both sides of that. Yeah, what's your perspective? Equation. Well, you know, I think there are there's are pros and cons, right? The the, the pro is that you have uh, control, and if you think that you're the right person to have control, you're not going to lose that if you have over over fifty. The 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 con is that there's some, the the benefit, the psychological benefit of having control also can be a psychological weight that's on your shoulders. So even if you have other co-founders that have equity but you feel like you're still controlling the company, 
you carry around this burden um, that that is, you know, the heavy is the crown that wears, or heavy is the head that wears the crown kind of quote. It, it, it's just lonely. Um, and, and so that loneliness and that burden to feel like you've got to make it success if it's all on you, that's just difficult. I mean, that that's just a, a difficult thing to do for a long time. And so, you know, with the new one, it, for me, it was important that, uh, you know, I brought in five, there's five co-founders kind of total and, you know, pretty equal equity split this time around. It really just to spread that burden and that weight. And so obviously you're giving up some upside, but if you're trying to build something for scale long-term, um, you know, that's not necessarily a bad, a bad thing to have a smaller piece of something much larger versus a bigger piece of something smaller. Yeah, I saw the big $14 million round that you guys just closed, which is congratulations. That's, yeah, that's thank incredible. You. Yeah. yeah. So let's get back to Andrew in, in a minute. I want to talk a little bit about Andrew, but first let's let's finish up on digitize.ai. So so I get sort of how you finance. So a couple, couple of angels, you had some co-founders. You know, this was 2017, as I understand it, when you started to commercialize the idea, right? Correct. Got it. And you sold in 2019. Correct. It was about a two-year run. <laughs> okay. So like that begs the question, what on earth did you do in 24 months to go from idea conception to selling it to um, you know, private equity back? You know, what did you do to, in those two years? Uh, you know, besides working 100-hour weeks and ignoring you know, family and friends, I mean, it, 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 um, it was a great outcome, but there was a sacrifice involved. And I I'm very honest and open when I talk to folks about that, that I, I was not a good father. I wasn't a good husband. I wasn't a good friend uh, during that period because I was so focused on, on building the company. So, you know, I think a lot of times people look at the success, which is, which is great, but they don't examine the, the flip side of that and sometimes of what's, that, what's required of that. And so, you know, there was a, there was a, there was a toll that it took and um, just being so focused uh, on the company 20 I mean there I can't I can't remember a single night probably during that two year period where I slept through the night um, and didn't wake up thinking about the company so I mean it was it it was a manic you know maniacal kind of focus that was required um, to, to to do that and so you know we in a lot of ways you know we did a lot of things right we, we got lucky in some areas and and uh, you know there's always a combination of you know, lots sure. of people involved, I think, with some of the stuff. But what practically did you do? Get, take it down from 30,000 feet, work yeah. hard to 500 feet. Like, practically, did you win your first hospital? Did you daisy chain that into a second? Like, how yeah. did you yeah. get from zero to, yeah. Yeah, so we started, we would just, we were hustling to take any kind of revenue we can get. So we, we had clients that were university systems to, we had a, a baby uh, stroller company that we were doing work for we were doing ai projects on the site so we were hustling to get cat i mean cash flow is the lifeblood right i mean you can't sure you can't <laughs> once you run out of cash you're kind of you're in a tough situation so i i, I was uh I, I think one of the biggest compliments i received from the acquirer down the road was you know he said you ran that software company like a, a one-man subway shop you knew every you know, penny that was coming in and out and that, 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 you know, really was the case. And so we were, we were, we were hustling to get revenue wherever we could as we kind of, you know, we had, we had angels, but it wasn't enough for us to not, to just build the product and not focus on sales. And so we use that as a way to almost kind of bridge while we built our product um, in, in the hospital system. And so, yes, then we landed one, one pretty well-known hospital system, which gave us credibility. You know, like a lot of industries, if you get a name brand, it, you have credibility to then kind of go in and parlay that into other other places. And so that's, you know, that was the route that we started going down. Got it. And did that hospital pay you up front or did they want 60 days or were they, is it SAS or how did, because that would have been a lot to fulfill that first hospital's order, I'm assuming. Yeah, so it started as a, also, actually as a consulting engagement and, and then turned into kind of a SaaS model um, mm -hmm. after that. And so again, consulting is great because you get the cash up front. Um, the, you know, the revenues on, on exit for consulting versus SaaS are very different. 
And so, you know, as we were always longer term focused on, you know, our SaaS model because we knew that was the way to get the, the valuation upon exit that we wanted. How did you deal with the IP intellectual property of the consulting? Because usually when you hire a consultant, you know, oftentimes the IP is owned by the person, you know, doing the hiring. <laughs> In other words, the hospital. Did you guys preempt that through your terms or what? How did you deal with yeah, that? Yeah, that was, yeah, from, from day one, we were uh, just 100% focused on making sure we protected IP rights. Because again, if you don't have IP rights as a software company, you're going to be in a world of hurt. And so, um, you know, we were, we were doing, um, provisional patent applications for some of the software we were building. We were, all of our contracts made sure that hundred percent, you know, of the IP was maintained by, by digitize.ai. So yeah, that was a, um, focus from, from, from day one, um, because you're right, especially when you're dealing with, uh, university systems and healthcare systems, it's pretty easy for that IP stuff to get intertwined and, mm-hmm. and and if it does you're like i said it, you're trying to, to sell it because you think about a potential acquirer right they don't want any potential litigation down the road um <laughs> around ip and so you've got you've got to from day one just be really focused on on make you know having a good ip lawyer um and setting that stuff up from from the start uh, you know one of the lessons i learned that was helpful for me was even at the time where you maybe don't think you can afford it, doing getting things set up the right way, legally and, and everything else, just prevents so much issues down the road. Um, so I'm a big fan of over-investing and, uh, you know, setting up the the structure, legal and everything else as optimal as you can from the get-go, because it may seem like a big investment at the time, but if you look at the down the road and kind of second order effects that can come from not doing that, it, 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 the ROI, I think, tends to be pretty high. No wonder you couldn't get the dryer fixed. You're spending it all on the damn lawyers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. So you protected your right. Did you get pushback from the hospitals in the, from that first hospital when you showed them the contract and they're like, no, we're not giving you the IP? I mean, did you get that pushback? No, I mean, I think we, we kind of set the stage from the gate that that was the way it was going to mm-hmm. be. Um, so it wasn't even a, it wasn't a discussion point, right? It, it, in terms of, it, there are certain things that I found when you're negotiating that you can have leeway on and certain things that just, it's, you're, you have to be willing to risk losing a deal over. Um, and, and to me, that was just one of the things you would walk away from a deal from if that was, you know, became an issue. I'm glad you raised valuation because in the difference between a service company, consulting company valuation and a, and a SaaS company, you know, software as a service company valuation. At that time, what were you thinking a consulting company might trade for in terms of a multiple? And what, what were you envisioning a SaaS company might, might be able to get yeah. in terms of a so, multiple? Yeah. And, I, and I, I was with a consulting company that PwC acquired. So I actually knew the valuation, the multiple that that got traded at. And so, you know, I think a good rule of thumb for a service kind of consulting, especially management consulting, traditionally it's been about one X, one X revenue. It's crept. If there's some IP and brand, it's, you know, it's crept up closer to two. So I think one to two X revenue, it tends to be what you're seeing for, for consulting businesses um, at, you know, 2017 and, and today for a SaaS business, and it's only gone up, but you know, at, at that time, you're probably looking at 15 to 25 times multiple on the revenue. So, you know, you're looking at a seven to, you know, 12 X difference from a consulting business. So again, that you can imagine why transition, you know, transitioning to a SaaS business was, you know, really important for us. Got it. What triggered you to want to sell so early? Because again, you started in 2017. You got your first hospital. What triggered the decision to sell in 2019? I'd say there are two primary causes. One was just on the personal front, the the level of stress and strain that myself and the co-founding team, I think we're feeling working the, the type of how hard we had to hustle during those two years to get to that point. We 
really we're at the inflection point where we had to raise institutional capital if we wanted to keep going at that point. Which, what does that mean, institutional capital? For folks who don't understand that, yeah. I think of like a, you know, a government body when I think of the word institution. <laughs> yeah, it means it means uh, you know venture capital firms that are you have angels that can be friends or family. It means they're, they're you know they're taking they're writing money out of their checking account or you know savings that uh, as an investment. But then you have firms like venture capital firms or private equity firms, and, and they basically manage other people's money. So the uh, large endowments, you know, California pension fund will put, you know, 20% of their, their endowment into venture capital, for example, because they have longer time horizons. The money's locked up for 10 to 15 years, but the returns usually higher than what you can get in the stock market or, you know, in a savings account. And so you have venture capital and private equity firms that have exploded really in the last decade, managing these other people's money that make investments for a long term, you know, uh, not if you look at someone, at, you know, a company and you say, I'm losing, you know, half a million bucks a month, you know, sign me, a, you know, write me a check <laughs> that values it. You know, most people are going to think you're crazy, but if your time horizon is long enough, you know, I think Amazon didn't make any profit for 20 plus years. Right. But they were building the, you know, the, this money cannon that, that, you know, they could flip the switch at some point. And so, you know, if your time horizon as an investor is long enough, you can make these uh, bets that that over time these unprofitable company, software companies, especially, will, will start to turn a profit. And so that was we had competitors in the space that were raising hundred million dollars of venture capital funding. And so that was the second part. In addition to kind of the per, on the personal side, in order to compete, uh, you know, continue to compete and grow, we knew we'd have to raise not just five or 10 million, you know, more like hundred million. And, and, you know, you're, you're signing up for a long, you take that amount of money, you're signing up for a long road to be able to uh, build and exit that. And so I think that was the inflection point that the co-founders and I, you know, looked at each other, you know, <laughs> can, are, are we ready to prepare to be in this for another five to 10 years? Or, or do we kind of, um, you know, basically say, you know, now is a good point uh, to exit, and and you know we'll we'll live to fight another day, so to speak. And so I think that that was the route that as a group we decided on. Um, and it was it was really anonymous. It wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, me making the decision. It was definitely uh, everyone kind of I think feeling uh, you know the same same thing at that point. So that that made it a little bit easier because you know I think if there was uh, uh, you know. If we were not aligned <laughs> to sell, uh, I, I think that would have been more difficult to, um, to, to, to move forward with that. What about the outside investors? I mean, how, what was their you know, comfort level with you selling at that early stage? Yeah, they, they, they made you know, many multiples on their money, so they were very happy um, to have that, you know, that quickly in two years. So um, every, every investor I had um, for, for that, last company, you know, invested and put more in uh, this time around. So, you know, they were obviously pleased with the, with the results. Got it. So take me on the journey. So you decide with the group, there's a lot of other competitors raising a bunch of money. Maybe now's the time. Was there, was there an inbound inquiry that made you start getting on your front foot and, and start, you know, the process or what, what, what happened next? Did you market the business? Did you hire a broker? Like, how did you start to the process? Yeah, we, you know, we had built relationships with a lot of different healthcare technology companies because we had a, we had a skill set that a lot of the legacy companies did not have at that time. And so I would say we probably started talking to companies more about strategic funding. So a, a, a larger company putting money into our business more, more so than an acquisition. Uh, but, you know, once those conversations started and, and you're going through that process, word tends to spread a little bit, especially, you know, some of these industries, m most of the folks kind of know the other folks. And so we, we just got to know a lot of different companies and, and build relationships at trade shows and, and, uh, you know, things like that in the back in the day when you could travel and, and meet in person. 
Um, and then we had some friends of the company that were investment bankers who, you know, said, hey, if you're talking to so-and-so and so-and-so, maybe, you know, this other person that would be interested. And so there, we did not hire an investment bank. Uh, we did not run a formal process. Uh, but, you know, I, I decided to kind of run a, a process myself where, you know, I, at one point, you know, maybe we had 10, 10 companies talking to us. And I said, okay, well, you know, if you're serious about it by this date, you know, I need a, uh, you know, indication that you're serious and then, you know, kind of winnow it down to, you know, letters of intent and, and, and things like that. And so really that, that was the, I ran kind of what investment banks typically do, you know, in terms of running a process, I did that myself. And I think it was really, for me, it was important for me to understand the process and to not outsource it. Um, because, you know, I was intellectually curious about it, but then I, 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 again, there's, you know, really digging in on the details was important to me. And so that's not the right answer for everyone, you know, really depends on the stage of the business and, you know, how much, how much inbound interest there is versus having to kind of gin up external interest. So, I mean, that's, that's a very personal, you know, decision, I think for every business, but for us at that time, you know, I think that was the, that was the right decision. Got it. And so how many on your long lists, I know you, you asked them to come up with like an indication of interest, but mm -hmm. kind of go up a step for me. Like how many companies were there that, that you thought that you had sort of initial conversations with? About a dozen. Okay. And yeah. of those, how many expressed, like submitted some sort of indication of interest? Probably about five. Okay. And how many of the five converted into letters of intent, like offers effectively? Yeah, I think we had, well, so a lot of times with the letters of intent, you get, they get exclusivity with yeah. that. And so you kind of have to do pre-letters of intent where it's, you're almost, you're negotiating numbers before you get the letter of intent. Because if you get the letter of intent and you sign it, then so I'd say there was probably three to four firms at, at the time where I was exchanging figures with. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, high, you know, for me doing things the right, you know, high character is important to me. And so I, I was very serious about when I was going to sign a letter of intent that it was going to be exclusive. I wasn't going to be talking to, you know, so that I took that very seriously. And so, um, you know, that, that was now obviously as a seller, you try to limit the length of how long you have exclusivity for, right? Buyers are going to want as much exclusivity as the time sure. as, as they can get. And you're going to, as a seller, want to keep that as short as you can. So there's that, that's part of the negotiation as well. It's not just, uh, you know, dollar amounts. There's also time, you know, timing around the deal close and all that kind of good stuff. So let me, let uh, me just pull up and, and talk to my listeners for a second. Uh, so what Justin's describing is the typical process in an M&A deal where there's a letter of intent that includes a no shop clause. And once you sign that, that gives the acquirer usually 30, 60, 90 days to do their due diligence. During that time, you're starting to lose negotiating leverage and the other buyers sort of go away. And so the longer the period of due diligence, uh, the worse off for you as a seller. And so what Justin's describing is, is doing a great job negotiating uh, a shorter exclusivity period so that, that he's kind of holding the acquirer's feet to the fire a little bit to make sure they close and that they don't, he doesn't lose interest in the other folks. Am I getting that? Yeah, right, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It, no, that's absolutely right. But there's also the the reality of you're still running a business at the same, you know, running and trying to grow a business. And so there's a distraction involved yeah. with the sales process that, you know, you don't want to go through it, not have a deal and then have your business suffer on, on the back end of it. So, you know, that's the that's a tremendous kind of strain as you're going through this is still still running the business day to day, still trying to grow it and doing this. So it's really you know, you have, you're doing, two, you know, at least two full-time jobs uh, going yeah. through this process. How, how short were you able to get the extent of the exclusivity agreement uh, down to like how many days did you get it limited to? I don't remember exactly. I want to say it was around 60. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, th I think maybe the initial ask was 90 and, and it got down to 60. I, I don't, I don't remember the exactly off the top of my head, but that feels about right to me. That sounds about right. Okay. Yeah. Got it. 
what was the range in um i know we're we we were going to talk kind of multiple uh ranges um if if we can how did your what was your reaction to the the three offers i think you mentioned of the five that you were sort of serious about three or four of them came forward with some sort of offer um like what were those offers like in terms of multiple of revenue like what was the range that kind of stuff yeah you know it's interesting looking back on it uh, in a lot of ways the ranges are were a reflection on the acquiring company's core business meaning some of the companies were more service-based and they were wanting to get into software but the multiple uh, were maybe lower than an all software business. So there's almost an all software business um, or predominantly software business, which, you know, Waystar is, is you know, their the vision is to build end to end software to automate the entire revenue cycle. We were just doing one very small piece of that. Um, you know, there's a comfort level, I think, because maybe they're receiving that multiple themselves versus a company that's let's say 50% services, 50% uh, software, um, which, which makes sense. I'm sure there's different costs of capital, right, for for those businesses and and all that. And so, reflecting back on it, you can almost line up the the differences multiples based on the probably the multiple that the acquiring company was receiving themselves. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So reading between the lines. Uh, a big professional services company may trade at one or two times revenue. So when they see a software company, they're like, I'm not paying some outlandish number yet a pure play software company who itself is being valued on a multiple of revenue, like a high multiple of revenue is much more com you know, comfortable with those sorts of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so let's say a software company or a services comp company that's half services, half software, and this is too simplistic, but you know, let's say services is one X and software is 20 X. Maybe they're getting valued at 10x themselves, right? You put those two together at 50-50 yeah. revenue versus an all-software company, you know, is 20x. And so they may be saying, okay, I, we're 10x ourselves. You're all software. You know, maybe we'll get you 12, 13x versus a software company saying, okay, we're we're 20x ourselves, so we're comfortable giving 20x from a from a you know acquisition perspective. And, the, and and I don't know if you can share, but the the offer that you the offers that you got from pure play software companies were were they in that sort of fifteen to twenty range uh, of, as a multiple of revenue? Yeah, they were. I mean, they were. I would say within industry standard uh, range, mm -hmm. um, and, and that was obviously, you know, we, we had optionality as a business. We you know we could have continued to grow a, a, a lot of ways. So selling below you know market didn't make you know. For us, the best alternative to a, a sale was just to, you know, raise money and kind of continue on. Um, so we were not in a place where we had to had to sell. And so, obviously, from a leverage perspective, that that helps, right? If you if you're in a position where you've got to sell no matter what the offer is, then you've, you know, you're obviously in a different position. Sure. Of those five uh, that you got sort of serious about and started exchanging numbers. Uh, of those five companies, what what proportion were were really talking to you about an investment in the company, but having you continue to run it versus an outright acquisition? That's a good question. I would say it's probably split, okay. uh, probably ha half and half. Um, and you know, obviously, sale price is important, but the, there's also a much larger, you know, it's part it's part of a larger equation where. You know, you have a team and you're, you're thinking about, is this going to be a good home for the team? Is this, um, you know, is there, is there a good value and culture, you know, match and fit? You know, all those type of kind of questions are at least were going through my mind because, um, you know, it's important for me to look at the larger picture and not just sell to the highest bidder. Uh, Got so, it. yeah. Okay, that's helpful for sure. So in terms of, I think people would be interesting. So this is, it's an interesting, we've had a lot of guests on the show where they start out under the auspices of looking to find a strategic investor effectively. And sometimes 
it's a veil, like they're actually looking to be acquired, but they're saying they want strategic investment and they, oh, lo and behold, it's, it, they get acquisition offers. Other times it's genuine. They want a strategic investor and the investor sort of turns the tables on them and says, well, actually, we'd like to buy you outright. I'd be curious in your case, like what happened that, like how, how did the, the idea of an outright acquisition come up in conversation? Yeah, I would say, you know, for us, it was organic where we really were looking for a strategic investor to begin with. And over time, uh, the idea of an outright acquisition started to sound better to the team. And so <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it, it flipped right in our process. And, and so it went from uh, talking too strategic to being upfront on, okay, we're, we're, we're actually okay with a full, full acquisition. And so that was, I think, something within the team dynamics. And again, I think, it, you know, linking back to the, the, the per, you know, the personal strain we were all under having, you know, built this thing so rapidly that, that you know, the sacrifices involved with that. And so I think that, that, that was just the, the personal decision of the team at the time. And so you know, at the end, we were we weren't entertaining strategic investment. At the end, you know, they, we were kind of we had we had cha- changed the the tone of the conversation, and so you know, we wanted to we didn't want to be compa- we didn't want to be comparing apples to oranges, right? At, at some point, you've got to pick your your route and kind of go down it and just you know stick with it. Uh, otherwise, I think if you're <laughs> hemming and hawing back and forth on do I want to they're just very different, you know, there's very different outcomes involved and there's pros and cons. And, and if you're trying to hedge too much, um, you know, what's that stock uh, quote, you know, you can be a bull or a bear, uh, you know, if you're neither, you're a turkey or something like that. Like, right. Yeah. I think <laughs> yeah, I yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's, that was definitely our mentality. Did ever, did the founding team ever pull up during that final stage of the negotiation when you're actually looking at letters of intent. And again, people are putting double digit multiples of revenue in front of you. Did, did anybody pull up and, and say, hold on a second. <laughs> like if, if they're giving us this now, what if we stayed independent for another five years and grew revenue by two, three, four X? Like, did, did you guys ever have that? I know that wasn't, I know it, it it wasn't necessarily the conversation you were having at the beginning and your investors were happy to get that kind of money out. But did anybody kind of on the founding team pull up and say, hold on a second, guys, if we just hang tight and grow for another two or three years, this could be like unbelievable. Yeah. And we definitely, yeah, we definitely had that discussion. I mean, that was, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think one of, one of the heuristics I had heard or read, which again is simplistic, but it's, a, a good, uh, you know, good direction is that if we take additional capital from a venture capital firm, for example, really for every dollar they put into the company, uh, a success, like a good outcome for them is a, is a 10 X, uh, return on that dollar. So, I, you know, I think we were sitting there saying, okay, geez, <laughs> if we, if we raise, you know, $50 million and we need to, you know, ha- have a $500 million exit for it to be a quote unquote good success for that investor. Are we really prepared to, to stick it out for that long to grow it to the point that it's going to take, you know, so we almost did, we did map, you know, napkin math where we started with the end state in mind of what that would look at and, hmm. and backed, backed into it. And it was pretty unanimous, you know, no, <laughs> we're, we're, we don't, we don't have the, the five to 10 years or whatever, you know, in us to, to really do that. And so once you, once you figure that out, you know, you start to narrow down options pretty quickly at that point. It's it's really great advice because uh, yeah, you take that, that outside money, you gotta, you gotta be in it for the long haul, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice for sure. Yeah. What a story. It's, it's it's amazing. What kind of return were you able to give those early angel investors? Like, if I had invested a dollar with you back in the early days, how much would you have given me back? Well, 
they had a clause. Uh, I, I can't answer that specifically, but I'll put it this way. They had a clause where they got to choose either uh, 3x their investment or the or the return. So they got the greater of those and they, they all chose the, the greater of the three X. So amazing. Amazing. No wonder they wanted to invest in the next yeah. one. <laughs> exactly. oh, I'm going to invest in the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the next one. Uh, what you're doing now? Cause this company sounds cool. Yeah. So Anduin, uh, dot AI, we are going back to my uh, PwC days. I've really seen an underinvestment of technology that's geared towards professional service companies. And by that, I mean, accounting firms, legal firms, uh, consulting firms. And so right now we're focused on the top 400 accounting firms building software to help them operate their business more, more effectively. It's uh, the software right now, it's, you know, mostly uh, controlled by these legacy companies that have been around for a hundred years and, and software that they are, uh, you know, selling or, you know, looks and feels like it was built, you know, 30 years ago because it, it probably was. And so I think it's a tremendous opportunity to bring modern uh, technology to help these, these firms operate their business more, more efficiently. And uh, certainly what we're seeing is, is a lot of these firms have had to go more of a remote setting because of COVID, um, the, the appetite and the desire to uh, have modern tech to kind of operate their business off of has definitely increased. And you've just round, you just raised this, as I mentioned earlier, this big round of, of $14 million of uh, VC money, I believe. Yes. Or correct. Outside. Yeah. Institutional, correct. as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, institutional. Yeah. And so for this one, the mindset is very different than the last one. We're, I mean, the co-founding team, we're in for the long haul. We want to IPO this company and, um, you know, run it for, you know, next 10 years if, if possible. So it's a very uh, different uh, setup and mindset. And everything from the beginning, you know, again, it was a strategic decision before starting it and everything from equity distribution to funding to everything else, um, you know, supporting that, that different strategy than what we had with, with the previous company. And what's the one lesson that you took away from Digitize that you chose to do either differently or leverage that insight, that wisdom you learned from Digitize to build Anduin. Anduin. Yeah, I think the, my superpower, I'm not the smartest guy by any stretch of the imagination, um, but what I do well and what our team does really well at is figure out where there's a, a pain in the market and build, build towards that pain. Unfortunately, I think one of the things I see a lot of times with wannabe entrepreneurs is they have a great idea and then they go down and build it. And it's like, you know, two guys in a garage, you know, you know, build it for two years and then pop their head up. Kind of, we talked about earlier, like if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes that works. There's some great examples of that working, but if you're trying to increase your odds of, of success, I think building around a common pain is important. And the only way to do that is to, have a lot of conversation. I mean, we had conversations with dozens of firms before we even put a line of code in software, really trying to triangulate where there's common pain. And so, I th you know, we did that well with at Digitize, and I think we're doing that well with Anduin as well. So solving someone's problem, not just building something for the sake of building it. I have one last question that I'm asking purely out of curiosity. You went to a, a very prestigious uh, undergraduate college and then you went to the chicago school of business and got an mba as mm -hmm. i understand it i was yeah, on your link so the booth school of business is probably one of the top 10 cut mbas in the country i would imagine mm -hmm. it's sort of yeah, up there. top five yeah top top five <laughs> don't undersell it john <laughs> top five all right can you teach entrepreneurship you can teach frameworks that will increase your likelihood of success you can't teach hustle and grind and work ethic though. I mean, in, in my opinion. So I, I think you need both. I mean, I think having, you don't have to have both, but both certainly help. So if you have frameworks and mental models and, and, and pattern recognition, I think that increases your chance of success. Doesn't guarantee it, but increases it. But on, on the same hand, you know, you know, you also need all those intangibles that a, 
university and school is not going to teach you. Um, they, they may, but, you know, I started doing manual labor from the earliest ages I can remember. And, you know, my parents made me, you know, earn everything. And there's at the time when I was digging ditches and I wanted to be playing baseball, I was not happy. Um, but I look back and, you know, I'm grateful for that, for that now. Cause that, that, you know, that work ethic was instilled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great. Great. To, great answer. Great to get to know you more. Where do, can people find you if uh, Anduin's website is anduin.ai? A-N-D-I-N, yep, dot A-I. And then right. obviously I'm on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. And we'll put both of your profile, LinkedIn profile and uh, the connection to Anduin on uh, at builtcell.com in the show notes. So Justin, this was fun. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, thank you, John. I appreciate it. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.